Welcome friends and colleagues. Today I want to complete the uh, discussion that we're having about Thelem and the Moose in our image and in our form or likeness in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Uh, just to briefly summarize, we talked about the context of the verse, which seems to have something to do with the man ruling over the land uh, and what's in it, and uh, the animals of various kinds, and uh, proposed an understanding based on nearest and parallel that man is to the living world as the king is to uh, his subjects, the way Near Easterners understood at that time. Um, and the parallels and other writings from the same time period. We got a little bit into philosophical and very little on how other religions uh, understand the image and the likeness. And uh, went on from that to some other topics. Today I planned, but didn't have time, to share with you the discussion of this subject from Nishmas Chaim, a book by a very fascinating uh, uh, rabbi and scholar uh, that was crucial at the time of Reformation for affecting the way the Reformation had seen itself and assess this difference from Catholicism and who we as Jews remember for ideas such as Abrahamic covenant that could unite all religions, for him getting the Jews back into England from which they were expelled uh, in 1250 in the massacre of, after the massacre of York uh, through Cromwell and the Puritan Parliament and the idea of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel being the newly discovered Indians in the New World and many others. Um, he wrote in eight languages and left tremendous legacy. Amongst them is this work, which is in Hebrew, On the Soul, which reviews everything known both in the Jewish writings and in writings from other uh, sources uh, regarding the nature of the soul. So it's, it's, of course, obvious that he would discuss the concept of image and form. <coughs> And he reviews in his work what essentially is going to be eight understandings of these terms. Now, obviously, uh, within the limitations of time, I can't go deeply into any of them. And it is possible, it's conceivable, that after you listen to me, one or two may not be clear, you may not understand. You can always reach out to me personally about that. But uh, really, this could be an entire course. So, let's begin. He first starts with saying that many non-Jewish sages understood the word Selim, image, to refer to the external form of man, one which we see and perceive. In other words, uh, it's the way man looks, the form, the shape, and the face. Lest you think that this is a uh, marginal position, it seems to have come back in the modern world 
There was a congressman who refused to wear a mask because he felt it was a nefarious plot to obscure the image of God, meaning his face. And there was also a lawsuit filed by a Michigan Catholic school arguing that the mask mandate is a violation of the freedom of religion because it hides the image of God. Now, as we will see, and as may be clear also from the last lecture, that is not what Catechism says about the image of God, and it's not the mainstream Christian position, but it's interesting how these ideas come back. So he first, Rabbi uh, Menashe ben Israel begins by discussing that concept, and the Odian anthropomorphites. Now, this was a Christian sect in the 4th century founded by Odius, that um, God literally has a human form. And he's not talking about the Son, but which clearly does, but, oh, the Father. The Father, too, has a human form. So this was... Uh, was strongly suppressed by the church. Uh, Kirill, one of the church fathers, composed the tract against it. Then they moved, the supporters of this view moved to Italy and were forcefully suppressed by the Catholic Church. But uh, it's, it is a position that did exist. As I said, it appears to be making somewhat of a comeback, uh, at least in those cases. Um, not the official, but a popular uh, understanding that's coming back. So, Manasseh says that's clearly incorrect because if the congregation of Israel, no one among us disputes the incorporeality of God, leaving aside some claims that there were individuals or opinions in the Middle Ages that God does have some kind of a shape that's not relevant to our discussion. He's correct. This is certainly not the majority, the overall majority holds that God is incorporeal. So there are no limbs or shape or form or likeness to God. And he cherry picks a few uh, verses like uh, Genesis 4.23, you have not seen any timuna, any representation of picture on Sinai. Interestingly, the numerical value of the word Temunah, his face of man. Or Psalms 89.7, who in the world compares to God? is similar to Lord more powerful, meaning there's no comparison. Or it says, what form will you assign to him? Isaiah 40.18. And King Solomon says that heavens and heavens of heavens cannot contain thee. Kings 1.8.27. Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, and the earth footstool for my feet. Now this here could be interpreted the opposite in which he interprets it, but Isaiah 66.1. Then he goes through some rabbinic statements uh, that suggest that God is incorporeal. So having established that the image of God doesn't refer to anything that it images, there's no actual substrate for this image, there's no bodies, no movement, Isaiah 40:25, to whom shall you compare me and I shall be equated? So if you had a body, then you could say that you could be compared. And he starts then going through the various opinions. The key to the issue is that there are two terms in which God made men. He made men 
in his image, and he met men in his demus, which means likeness or shape. So the first question that comes up is, are those two synonyms, do they mean the same thing, or are they two different things? So he quotes uh, Don Isaac Abarbanel, who explained that image and form are synonymous, that they both mean the same thing. Why? In Genesis 1.27 says, And God created man according to his image. And 1.25, it says, According to the, the form of God made him. So, therefore, 1.27 is explaining 1.25. It means the same thing. And he goes on to explain that what it means that man is similar to the Creator in various ways, one of which, relevant to us, is that just as the final cause is the goal of all realities and to which long all beings, man is the final cause of all lower physical entities. Uh, by final cause, uh, he means the Aristotelian cause, uh, which um, we no longer even believe in. Uh, since uh, Francis Bacon, this cause has been out of favor. It's kind of a teleological cause. What it says is that that which something will become is the cause of it. For example, uh, a fully shaped tree is the cause of um, the seed. The seed is there in order that it should become a tree. This is what causes that. In our current scientific uh, thinking, that's uh, fallen by the wayside. We no longer really utilize such things. Although it's interesting that in science, a lot of times, in order to propose a hypothesis, <coughs> you will consider what the purpose of a, of a molecule or protein is. And then from there, you go back and propose a hypothesis of how its substance, its shape, conformation, or, or, or chemical uh, composition uh, is, uh, judging from the end result to the first. But nevertheless, this is not a, co a cause. Stepping back, what he's saying is just like the world is there for God, so the earth and its inhabitants are there for men, in order for men. That's called the final cause. On the other hand, he says that the Rambam, Maimonides, in the beginning of the guide, distinguishes between Tselem and Demus. He thinks that Tselem is used for the soul, which is specific to every person, and Demus is the intellectual attainment. It's the most mean similarity, likeness. It's the grasp of some truth, which is how God knows things as well. Although God's grasp is not the same as man's grasp, at first look one might think it to be the same, and therefore it can be spoken of regarding man in the same way. What he means to say, Manasseh explains, is that man knows by uniting himself with divine intelligence, as Seichel Apol, which is God's image and form, uh, but not that God has uh, a body or a physical appearance. For those of you who don't have uh, much philosophical training, I understand that this is going to be a little bit confusing, but uh, there's really no time to get into deeper. Then he goes to another opinion that he wants to explain, that's Menasseh, uh, that the tselem is the word tsel with an addition. What's tsel is shadow. 
So tell him man is therefore a shadow of what? It's the shadow of the world. <clears throat> God projected the divine form upon the creature and shaped and contoured man as uh, according to that form. And as the shadow will move in response to the source of light opposite to it, you know, you raise your hand and the shadow is and so man should be imitating God, has the capacity to walk after God and his ways. Uh, it's interesting, when I was researching this, I actually found a report of a bishop meeting with Rav Abuab, a contemporary of Menashe Ben Israel in Amsterdam, and the discussion, and there this view appears. I'm not sure where else it appears. This comes from this 8th International Symposium on the History of the Jews in Netherlands, uh, published by Brill 2001, page 15. So this idea was current among the Jews of Amsterdam, and here Nasher Ben Israel reports it. Another view. Our image means an image that separated from God, and which is the world of angels. Uh, to explain, um, the the image is, uh, is Tzalem Elohim, an image of Elohim. Elohim is the word that could refer to angels, or the heavenly spheres. So in other words, man is the likeness of the entire created world. So this is the idea which was very prevalent in um, <clears throat> the Middle Ages, <clears throat> that man is called a small world, and everything in man corresponds to something called the great world. Uh, the concept is found in Ovis the Rabbi Nossen in chapter 32, sorry, 31 of the Vilna edition. And uh, whatever is found in the world is found in the man. There are liquids in the moon, in the man, like found in, in the world, rivers and lakes. There are mountains. Man's hair represents forests, etc. Okay, so that's another view. So the the we're beginning to move to the concept that Selim of Selim Elohim, the image of God, the off in that phrase doesn't mean exactly his, but of him. So in other words, Tzalem Elohim, image of God, means the image that belongs to God. For example, if a God were to have a stamp, that would be called the stamp to make images, or you could call it the image of God. And that is what this image is. This image is not the image exactly of God, but an image that doesn't look like God, but is created by him, belongs to him, the image of God, a stamp of God. <coughs> this understanding is proposed by Rashi, by the way, in his explanation of this verse, and also in uh, chapters of the Fathers, the fourth ch chapter. Man is creating the image of God, and then it goes on to say like that. And there are other Talmudic sources to that, which we'll come to in a minute. But then he quotes uh, Rabbi Judah Halevi, Rabbi Huda Halevi, in Kuzari 4.3. He 
He says you should not find it difficult that man is compared to the Creator, because it's the aspect of intellect in which we compare it to him. Translation. It's human intellect which is compared to God, uh, because that is something that both God and human beings share. This is also the position of uh, Maimonides in the beginning of this, of his uh, Guide to the Perplexed. Now, Minasi points to the uh, short summary. He says that in this short argument, Kuzari resolves three problems. In the beginning of his statement, he told us that the meaning of the comparison between man and God is purely in the intellectual sphere. That is to say, that in the intell- it's in the intel- intellect that man is distinct from animals. Second, the comparison is that man is a small universe relating to God as the great universe. Okay, this requires a lot of explanation, but I will not go into it for the sake of time. And then he goes on to another explanation. So, yet another explanation is coming. He quotes Rav Yosef Gikatilia, a a Kabbalist in Spain prior to the expulsion, that the arrangements of chariots and all are arranged in the form of men, and all the camps of angels and beings which join together are called men, etc. He quotes some other sources, and the, the basis of this view is that there's an emanated form of man, later in Kabbalah it would be called Adam Kadmon, the primordial man. And again, the image of God is not that it represents the God as the infinite being, but as the emanation in the shape of man from which the universe uh, later evolved. Another explanation that Again, take an image of God as an image that belongs to God, but doesn't really present us a picture of God in any way. In the name of Sadia Gowan, in the Nachmanides' letter of Hitnatslut, our image means the image which we appear, wish to appear to prophets. In other words, when God appears, appears to prophets, he appears in a certain shape as a man speaking to them. Uh, That image is not an image of God at all, but it's a way prophets perceive God when they see him. Whether it's a created image that he utilizes for that purpose, or whether it might be as the, uh, um, as uh, Rav Dessler writes in Mechtev Melio, uh, and by uh, Rabbi Ari Carmel, who translated some parts of Miktav Miliyoh in Strife for Truth, three volumes, I believe. He says that an interaction of the human nervous system, the human imagination, the human brain, with the divine influence that comes upon it in prophecy, makes it manifest in images. And whatever that is, that the being that speaks to him is, 
all that human brain can perceive is an image of God that looks like an image, a representation. Remember last week we spoke about how a handkerchief of the Beloved can represent the entire Beloved, even though uh, it in no way resembles uh, him or her. So the same way, uh, there is a certain image that the brain perceives as a way of translating what it's experiencing uh, into an understandable fact, uh, and that is seeing God as a man speaking to him. So, Miktav uh, Meliahu's interesting explanation has uh, deep roots. And ultimately, the last explanation that he offers is that that it's the soul. The soul is called our image because there's something about the soul that's divine. This really takes us to a uh, much bigger question of whether human soul is in some way uh, has its roots in the very being, uh, the infinite essence of God, or whether it's created uh, at some uh, lower stage of emanation, which is a Kabbalistic discussion and uh, not for now. He also points out that uh, if the image of God in man is is the soul, it uh, leads us to the concept of immortality of the soul. And he quotes Plato in Phaedo, the one of the Platonic dialogues to that effect. So to step back, we just discussed very, very quickly tremendous amount of material. I think uh, seven or eight uh, different uh, explanations found in Jewish sources, and there are probably more. I'd like to end with a more modern explanation. <coughs> it's no secret that nowadays we perceive things quite differently than they perceived in the Middle Ages or either even early Middle I'm sorry, early modern times. Uh, to us now, the uh, idea and the concept of freedom is uh, the main thing that distinguishes a human being. It's the independence, the freedom, the liberty and capacity of a man to choose and be different things that uh, is key to uh, to what being human is all about. And uh, this is expressed in uh, Rabbi Sachs's essay. Rabbi Sachs was uh, the recently departed chief rabbi of England, a, a very literate, very well-educated man, both in secular and rabbinics. And uh, who had an amazing capacity to marry the two sides of his learning. And in his book on Genesis, which is Covenant and Conversation, and the very first chapter, he quotes Piccadilly Mirandola, Oration on Men. And he shows that of Soloveitchik, 
of Joseph Bersalovechik, my teacher, also adapted this idea in uh, his work, The Lonely Men of Faith. So I'll read you the chapter. So in this in this perception conception, what makes men in the image of God is his ability to choose. God is not constrained by anything. Man, of course, is is somewhat constrained, but nevertheless both are similar in that uh, theoretically at least man's choice is completely free, completely up to him. So he says like this. We have given you, our Adam, no visage proper to yourself, no endowment properly your own, in order that whatever place, whatever form, whatever gifts you may with premeditation select, this same you may have and possess through your own judgment and decision. The nature of all the creatures defined restricted within laws, etc. Uh, you, by contrast, impeded by no such restriction made by your own free will into whose custody we have assigned you trace for yourself the lineaments of your own nature. I've placed you at the very center of the world so that from that vantage point you may with greater ease glance round you and all that the world contains. We made a creature neither of heaven nor of earth, neither mortal nor immortal, meaning both, I think, in order that you may, as the free and proud shaper of your own being, fashion yourself in the form you prefer. It will be in your power to descend to the lower brutish forms of life. You will be able through your own decision to rise again to superior orders whose life is divine. Pica della Mirandola, the great Renaissance scholar, quite affected by Kabbalah and Jewish learning in the book and the dignity of men. Thank you for listening and may you have only blessings. <laughs>